Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. The results from the 2022 elections in North Carolina have been determined, and it looks like a red wave for the Republican Party in this state. Unlike other parts of the country where the expected red wave did not occur, that was not the reality in the good old North State. At the state level, all 120 seats of the North Carolina House of Representatives and the 50 seats in the North Carolina Senate were on the ballot. In those races, the Republican Party was able to secure a veto-proof majority and fell short of the same result in the House of Representatives by a mere one vote. Among the losses in the Senate was that of longtime political leader, Senator Toby Fitch. But an African-American Republican, Ken Fontanto, won election to the House of Representatives from Wilson County. Ricky Hurtado, the lone Hispanic in the House of Representatives, lost his race by a small margin. Also on the ballot were four North Carolina Court of Appeals seats and two North Carolina Supreme Court seats. In those races, the Republican candidates won by larger than expected margins. North Carolina also voted for local governmental representatives and outside of urban areas, the Republicans were able to achieve significant victories. In just about every contested judicial race at the Superior Court and the District Court levels, Republican candidates won. At the national level, all 435 U.S. House of Representatives seats were on the ballot, and North Carolina voted for 14 U.S. congressional representatives. In these races, Democrats and Republicans split them evenly, and in a historic result, three African Americans won. The question is whether the General Assembly will redistrict that diversity away during the upcoming electoral legislative session. 35 of the 100 seats in the U.S. Senate were also on the ballot, including one of North Carolina's two U.S. Senate seats. Cheryl Beasley, who was the Democratic candidate and the African-American, lost in that race to Ted Bush. Tonight, we're going to talk about the results and implications of the North Carolina-specific races. Joining us for this discussion is uh, Nicole Dozier, the former mayor pro tem and member of the Apex Town Council, and now the director of the Health Advocate Project of the uh, North Carolina Justice Center. So, uh, Ms. Dozier, how are you? And thank you for joining us tonight. I'm doing well, Professor Joyner, and hope you are. Thank you so much for the invitation. 
Well, thank you for joining us here and bringing uh, to us all of the uh, the experience that you've had as a uh, as an elected official official at the uh, local level. But to, to get us started, uh, can you kind of share with our audience the uh, some general impressions that you had uh, of the uh, 2022 midterm elections? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, going into the elections, we did think that they were going to be more conservatives earning, getting seats, gaining seats, and uh, less people who say that they're progressive or even moderate. For the issue that I work on everyday healthcare, that wasn't necessarily good for us. So what we did try to do leading up to the elections was to explain to people that, you know, while a lot of issues are important, if you have healthcare <laughs> is key. So we talk about people being able to be able to be productive at work or productive at school in their communities or where they live, you have to have healthcare. And so for us, we know that it's been 10 years since North Carolina should have expanded Medicaid. And that if we did not earn or keep the seats of the Democrats who said that they you know, first and foremost, healthcare was on their minds, or even the seats of the Republicans who for many years, key ones who were trying to close the coverage gap, that Medicaid expansion would be in trouble and not, well, at least not happen this year, that we would have to wait till long session. You know, so the problem with waiting till long session is that over 1,100 people die every year just because they're uninsured. And so we were in this moment where we had, you know, for example, um, Bert, you know, um, President Pro Tem Berger um, say he was the most against Medicaid expansion of anyone. And to start speaking publicly about not closing the coverage back gap, but about Medicaid expansion. And for Speaker Moore to have been less of a roadblock before to say, also, this is good policy. And to be talking about this publicly and to have legislative um, committees focus on this, we knew we had to have lawmakers around them that would help give them cover and push forward and get this done. So what happened is that now we see what's gonna happen for 2023 in a long session who are gonna be in those seats. So now we know in December, there is no will from our lawmakers from our in leadership to actually have the session that they said they were gonna have in December. So that's what happened with the election. So what will, be on, what will be on the table, right? Will be redistricting and then what our new Supreme Court will do related to that. So we went from a Supreme Court in North Carolina with four to three progressive to conservative. And now we're at five to two with two being progressive. So that's something else that whatever the general assembly seeks to do around maps then determines who holds seats. And then the Supreme court may be more likely to approve those maps. And that's where I am with the election results. Well, yeah, since you raised the issue of uh, Medicaid uh, expansion, which was an issue that uh, emerged 
around the uh, 2010 uh, election when the uh, Republicans uh, first took control of the uh, of the General Assembly. Um, the uh, what do you con uh, attribute the opposition to uh, Medicaid expansion as being? Why is it that uh, the uh, Republican leadership has not endorsed uh, that notion since in these rural areas where many of the Republican legislators uh, reside, uh, the need for Medicaid expansion is probably the highest. Well, I'm gonna say it. Um, I do believe it was because the Medicaid expansion piece was part of the Affordable Care Act, which was President Obama's landmark legislation that he got done. Um, and I do think that folks originally wanted to be the one that hated Obama's policies the most. But you see that states, you know, where we have, you know, um, like Indiana, Idaho, Iowa, Arkansas, all those states that were very conservative saw that not just that it was a moral imperative, but an economic one. And so we just didn't have that happen. And What's interesting is that we actually, in, in, on our project, on um, the health advocacy team, we actually organized eight of the Southern holdout states because we were thinking, hmm, wonder why of the 12 states left behind, we have eight in the South. And so we thought maybe that's a legacy of, you know, racism, legacy of having people who were enslaved, the most enslaved. And so we decided that we would, you know, pull together a coalition and work on this. And so, but you see um, that, you know, we've had incentives um, to get this done beyond the original incentive of having this full Medicaid expansion population pay for about 100% and then stepping down, you know, not going under 90% and literally taking an act of Congress to change that. But it's interesting that, you know, there were things that, that were said here in North Carolina, well, we can't trust the federal government, but we trust them to fund our military. We trust them in, in you know, natural disasters. We trusted them with COVID, <laughs> but we don't trust them with Medicaid expansion. There have been none of the states, including Washington, D.C., that expanded Medicaid that have said, oh, this isn't working out. Not one. So I would say it's about ideology and people trying to win seats. But even with polling over time and more education over time, we see that 70% of the people in North Carolina believe that we should expand Medicaid. And I will also add that with you know, a pandemic, you know, so once we had COVID-19 as a public health emergency that ended up into an economic um, emergency is that people found out that they're only as healthy as the person next to them and the person next to them. So there was no partisanship with COVID-19. There wasn't any state boundaries or county boundaries. COVID-19 affected everyone in some way. And so I, I would just submit that that's been the, 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 the issue all the time is people really not telling the truth about and not accepting that we're losing, you know, billions of dollars into, you know, into our economy. And right now we'll say that 
the Southerners from Medicaid Expansion Coalition, I just was it that we just I just spoke about is that we were able to once Georgia got those two seats, right, and we had a majority last time, we were actually able to work and lobby um, the senators and then let our Congress people in North Carolina know what we were doing to create a federal fix, an opportunity to go around the state legislators who at the time and leadership were not doing the right thing for their constituencies. So in the American Rescue Plan, we heard about this incentive of increasing the federal match that the federal government would pay, not for the, not just the, the, the Medicaid expansion population, but for the whole Medicaid, Medicaid population each state. For North Carolina, that would be between $1.7 and $2 billion over two years. So that is something that we worked on collaboratively and led, which is an incredible incentive. So I do believe that that incentive, that additional incentive of money coming in for the full Medicaid population, and then also the incentive for the expansion population getting paid at 90% match. <laughs> It's a win-win economically. And I think that's why the conversations have picked up around this issue of we've got to do something around people who, you know, are people who are teacher assistants, people who are child care workers. We have 30,000 veterans in North Carolina who have who are in the coverage gap. Why is that? Why are we thanking people for their service and not making sure they are have what they need to survive and thrive in this community? 23,000 of veterans' families have no, act, have no insurance. So we need to stop saying something. We need to start doing something about it. Um, Nicole, you mentioned the um, health policy advocacy team and the work that that organization is doing and that you're, you know, you're the director of that organization. We're going to talk more about the results of the election, but can you share with us just a little bit more about the organization and, and the additional work that it does in your role as director? Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, April. Yeah, so the, the overarching um, organization is the North Carolina Justice Center. Our goal is to eliminate poverty. <laughs> so it's a big goal. And, you know, our team, the Health Advocacy Project, our goal is to make sure that each person in North Carolina can go to see the doctor and have services or see the, the right professional in the right, at the right time in the right setting. Right now, we see people delaying care and dying. Um, and having less quality of life just because they can't see the doctor. And having an insurance card doesn't always mean you have access. And so we want to make sure, and it doesn't also mean you have equitable access either. Um, we need to eliminate the fact that we need to stop um, um, and, and attack the inequities, for example, that mean that Black babies, when they're born, they're twice as likely to die within the first year of life as white babies. And we need to do what I've heard one expert say is stop treating the mom as a wrapper for the baby and start paying, continue to pay attention to the mom after delivery. So, you know, I would just say that our work is really around bringing healthcare to everyone in North Carolina, and then also making sure that, you know, us as a Southern region, that we're able to attack inequities that were like based in, you know, bad policy. Um, the people say that, um, that the system's broken. Actually, with ideology and our country being based, you know, founded racism, you know, the system actually works the way it was intended to. 
I just, we need to change the system. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we're talking with uh, Nicole Dozier, uh, the former mayor pro tem and uh, member of the uh, Apex Town Council. And she is also the uh, director of the Health Advocacy Project of the uh, North Carolina Justice uh, Center. We're gonna take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, continue our discussion dealing with the uh, impact of the uh, 2022 North Carolina uh, midterm uh, election. So we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal uh, Review where we are continuing our conversation with uh, Nicole Dozier, the uh, former Mayor Pro Tem and member of the Apex uh, Town Council. And uh, we're talking about some of the uh, impacts of the uh, 2022 uh, midterm uh, elections here in uh, in North Carolina. Um, Nicole, you, you, you talked about Medicaid expansion, which was one of the platforms that uh, Cheryl Beasley uh, had. Uh, and uh, in the past, over the uh, last uh, 10 years or so, uh, we have not had a lot of support at the uh, federal level from our U.S. senators for Medicaid expansion, nor have we had a lot of support uh, for that until just recently from the North Carolina uh, Senate and House of Representatives leadership. Uh, what do you anticipate uh, is going to occur now at the uh, North Carolina uh, General Assembly with respect to uh, Medicaid expansion. There has been some talk uh, among uh, some of the leaders that it was now time after this pandemic uh, to expand 
Medicaid. Uh, where does that stand uh, right now? And uh, do we see movement uh, in a positive direction on that, uh, on that count? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I do feel that all three branches of government, the leadership there are still committed um, to expanding Medicaid. I really do. I think the issues are going to be around timing, though. I think it's not going to be when we want it. It's not going to be when the Secretary of HHS wanted it. I think it's going to be in the long session. I don't know it's going to be at the very start, um, but I do believe it will be. Um, I think besides timing, it's going to be about negotiation. So we do know um, how negotiation works often in North Carolina behind closed doors um, without public input um, and sometimes without input from other uh, people in leadership. But I do believe that those things, those conversations are continuing to happen. Uh, and I do believe that the people in North Carolina are going to continue to you know, have a build a groundswell of support for this issue and for their friends and neighbors who really need to be able to have health insurance. And so I do think it'll happen. I do think it'll happen in a long session. And when you um, talk about the groundswell of support from um, the constituents, those of us that are, you know, looking to our leaders to lead us appropriately, can you talk about ways that the community can be involved? Um, you mentioned negotiations that happen behind the scenes. We're not always privy to that. What can we do as citizens and um, members of, of the North Carolina community to push our lawmakers to making sure that this gets done sooner rather than later? Yeah, yeah. I I think it's the most important. It, you know, as an elected official haven't been elected official, it's really important from your seat to be able to do what the people that have put you in that seat want. Um, you are the ultimate decision maker and you need to be able to make tough decisions. And so I do think it's important for people to join advocates and people who are at the center of what we do, which are people who are directly impacted. And so um, I will make sure that I give you information for folks, you know, to be able to join, you know, uh, in our efforts. But one of the things that we do is we hold vigils. So we have held, we held a vigil this past session right in front of the General Assembly and had people who were impacted by losing family members because of uninsurance and not being able to access mental health care, for example. Um, we had people who you have mothers who lost their adult children due to mental health issues. We had, you know, young people losing their, their mothers or fathers because they didn't have enough access to the medicines they need. We had people just straight up delaying care. Um, and we had people who were not listened to when they were receiving care and then had a baby being stillborn. And then um, without health insurance, she ended up losing her life to preventable, treatable cervical cancer. So that's what I would say is to think about, you know, coming to the General Assembly and letting your lawmaker know or going to see them in your community. This is something that I want. Um, and we have we have press conferences where people could speak, you know, about the experience they have not being able to see the doctor or any other provider when they need to. I think, you know, letters to the editor, postcard campaigns, social media campaigns, you know, South Dakota just won um, a referendum around 
you know, on the ballot about Medicaid expansion. We need to celebrate that. We need to go on social media and say, hey, state lawmaker, we want to celebrate with South Dakota, but how do we, how do they beat us? We're better than South Dakota. Let's get it done here in North Carolina. Now, you were, uh, I believe, the first African-American to be elected to the uh, Apex Town Council. And you served uh, eight years on that uh, council uh, at a time that the population was shifting uh, tremendously, uh, not only in uh, Wake County, but more particularly in, uh, in, in, in Apex. Um, as an elected official, did you see a, uh, a drift in the political sentiments of uh, your constituency uh, during, that, uh, during that time that you were in the, a leadership role in the, uh, in, in, in the town of Apex? Yeah, good question. I will um, tell you that I was, people called me the first black in memory because Clarice Atwater was actually the first woman and she happened to be a black woman who owned an assisted living center. But a lot of people, we, they said memory because it was 20 years before I actually ran for office. Um, but so, but I was the first to serve three different councils as mayor pro tem though. Um, so your question, yeah, is, is a good one. I had actually more people who were um, on the team that actually recruited me was very diverse and um, overwhelming. Well, I would say more white people saying we are represented as far as our ethnicity being white on the council. And so we're coming to you because we think that the council should have more representation, people who are more progressive, women um, and you know people of color. And so 12 years before I ran in 2013, a white woman, Christine Hilt, was also on the council. She was a lands she's a landscape architect. So I was the first person who Denise Wilkie, who was a white woman and a teacher, we were the first to actually actually come in, unseat an incumbent and in votes. Actually she had 18.8% of the vote. I had 18.08. We actually had the highest votes of all the of the three of us, um, and no disrespect to Council Member um, Jean um, at the time, but I will say that the fact that I was elected in that seat and had the votes that I received um, very unexpected. I would say that um, people were shifting and just thinking in that moment that they had heard maybe some had heard about where I worked and maybe they didn't quite understand what anti-poverty work was, or they may didn't might not have understood some of the things around Medicaid or things that I was pushing for, but they saw me as an advocate. And so I had people who were, you know, very different and thought about how I think about policy from people who are identified as people who are Tea Party to people who are, you know, probably even more progressive, maybe potentially than I was. And but they felt, they said, you know, I never asked them about whether they were RD or I when I was trying to get their child's bus off the main road, you know, or when something happened in a development related to an issue with a builder. I'm trying to get, you know, or related to health, you know, house insurance. Let's get the, you know, insurance commissioner down here. So they saw me as someone who was a problem solver um, and thought that they didn't care. And I've had, you know, how I, 
maybe leaned. Um, I don't like to use a lot of labels because typically for people of color, our, the labels people give us aren't necessarily positive. So people call me left-leaning. I, I never said I was left-leaning. I said, I'm progressive. I'm moving forward. I'm not standing still. I'm not going back to the bad old days either. And so, so I think that I, I hope that the way I conducted myself during my campaign was really trying to be everywhere, you know, and that I served the same way that when I ran for election, you weren't like, where have you been? You know, and I wasn't like trying to go to every church because I can't keep that up. But I was trying to be everywhere in the community um, to listen to people. So, yeah, I think that the people were ready for something new, but they trusted me, even though they didn't understand what Medicaid was or why I wanted healthcare for everyone. You know, why won't people just work hard? I'm like, because that's actually not a policy argument, because the person that's paid this as a landscape assistant, they're not going to make any more than what the market says a landscape assistant is. So what are you telling me? Well, they need to get a better job. Okay, so when they get the better job, someone fills that role, what are we paying that person? The same thing. So they said they might not agree with me on those things, but they thought I operated in integrity and that I always explained sort of how I came about on my no. <laughs> I was very clear about being, you know, standing alone if I knew that I, I was right, making the right decisions. And so I think it was two things, a shift, and a trust in how I made decisions, even if they didn't agree with them. Hope that answered your question. Yeah, and so when we think about the population shift that occurred or, and is continuing to occur in um, Wake County and Apex and Cary and Raleigh, we're actually seeing a population shift throughout the state. And which is one of the reasons why it's surprising that we did have this you know, kind of red wave in a Republican wave in North Carolina. Can you talk about the shifts that are taking place statewide and why it is that we may not being, why we are not seeing the same type of progressive officials being elected, despite the fact that these are things that we need? And, and to your point about, you know, healthcare, um, and the expansion of Medicaid, that is something that will benefit the state as a whole in so many ways. Why is this what, what we saw in Apex with your election and re-election? Why are we not seeing that across the state? Yeah, thanks for the question. I, I think it's really hard to run for office, first of all. You know, I, I think it's really challenging. I think oftentimes people who are underrepresented in those offices and those seats that, and I'll say we, um, it's when people come to us, we think, we try to give every reason why we are not prepared to run, why we don't think that we have the qualifications to run, that we think we can't raise the amount of money because we look and see who's raising money. And, you know, if you look at what, and so local level or state level, Look at you know how much a white male is able to raise, or someone who's more conservative versus, I say, a black woman who is very progressive. Um, you can even look at sort of the attacks, like look at some of the ads and how those you know things that people were said and the rhetoric. It's really hard to put yourself and your family through some of that. Um, I mean, for me, when I ran, I had to ask permission from my family. Do you want to be under a microscope? You know. You have to ask it of your children. Do you want to be that? So if something happens, now everyone you know, may be like, well, the son of, the daughter of, the wife of, the spouse of. And so 
that person, you have to really think about what it is. I think it's important for us to wrap ourselves around people who are very interested in moving things forward in their communities and say to them, stop making this list and saying all the things you can't do because other folks, they don't even make the list. They're like, yeah, I can do this. I did it to myself. I said, I can't do this. I don't understand local level the way, you know, I should. But actually that really didn't make any sense because I understand a lot of other things and I am willing to learn and I did. So I think that's one thing. Um, and I think that while we can raise, we need to raise money, we also have to get people to come out and vote for us. I walked a lot of neighborhoods. I walked and I knocked doors. And I think that's one thing that we have to, I think the pandemic have, has had an impact on, but I think that it's important to have a lot of people working with you and doing different things. I called, it wasn't a day I didn't call people, maybe Sunday, but I had a number of people I was gonna call every day. Um, and I didn't just assume because I had a list of people that more may, may be more in line with my values. I didn't assume, I went off the script and off the list. And every time I did that, that person took my sign. I had people who had like my sign and someone who's very to the right of me I had people take my handouts and say, well, let me rock the rest of my neighborhood. I had people walk whole neighborhoods. I had young people, white males, teenagers walk neighborhoods for me. So I think it's important to, to not just assume that the party you are aligned with can help you, but to move beyond that. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think that's important. The other thing is I think that people just sometimes are not going to vote in their best interest. They're going to pick couple of policies that they think that they're more aligned with them and if you think something is not for you don't do that <laughs> right but it doesn't mean someone else doesn't have the right to do that well you know in in in, in line with that uh we see more and more african-americans who are being recruited and presented by the republican party now as uh standard bank and we see that uh, in North Carolina as in other states. Uh, we just had the election of uh, Ken Fortinock, who's a, a minister down in uh, Wilson County who beat uh, the incumbent uh, representative from that district who was an African-American uh, woman. Uh, the uh, Lieutenant Governor of uh, North Carolina is a, uh, a Republican. And then on the national scale, you're looking at uh, Georgia. Uh, with uh, Herschel Walker. Uh, do you see that there is a drift or a possibility that African-Americans are now uh, beginning to gravitate toward the uh, Republican Party or uh, is it more of them being used as a prop? You know, I really don't understand it myself. I I just don't. And maybe it's just the way I operate too. Um, I find it difficult when I hear the people that you're speaking of, when I hear them speak about what they say they value, but then you read, it's important to read when I read and hear about things that are, that things that they have done in their own personal lives, that they have not come out and shared those things. Um, and that I don't see a policy background, you know, I don't see any of that. And I believe that people 
um, we ha should have diversity within who runs for office and who we elect. However, um, you're, you need to be able to answer and talk about how you would serve and the things that are important to you and your constituency and what's important to you should be reflected from your constituency. And that's what I don't see. So I don't think that people who don't speak in that way are really serious about representing the interests of everyone. Um, that's, that's what I'll say there. I think it's very interesting. And I actually think it's, um, it could be very harmful to, to us because there are some people who have not been able to do as much research as some people before they show up to the polls and haven't made a plan. So if you see me as a woman of color and someone else, as a woman of color, and you haven't researched us, you may just go in there and do that. And I think it's about, I would love to be able to vote for more people that represent me and, 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 and have more diversity um, related to ethnicity and other things. But I'm going to have to put in office a person who reflects not just, you know, it reflects my, what I, what I think is important for my family and me and for my community. And those people that you named um, don't seem to in what they speak about. It seems to be more rhetoric and that's not what we need. We need people who can help, help move things forward. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with Nicole Dozier. She is the retired mayor pro tem of Apex and the current director of the Health Advocacy Project of the North Carolina Justice Center. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Nicole Dozier. She is the retired mayor pro tem of Apex and she's the director of the Health Advocacy Project of the North Carolina Justice Center. And um, Nicole, thank you so much for taking time to, to talk with us and share your 
um, perspectives, especially as a, a former elected official, as someone who is deep in the healthcare space and advocacy. As we return um, from our break, can you talk a little bit, you've talked about the, um, the push that we need to make in terms of ensuring that our elected officials understand what needs to be done as it relates to uh, Medicaid expansion. Are there other key topics and considerations that we need to make sure we push our elected officials to consider as we go into this next year? Yeah, thank you so much, April. Certainly, um, one of the things I would say is that medical debt is a huge issue um, for all of us, mm -hmm. right? So whether you're underinsured or uninsured or insured, most of us have been touched by medical debt. And it is a very bipartisan issue um, so you may have heard there's efforts around capping the cost, for example, for prescription drugs like um, insulin, you know, related to diabetes, you know, I would submit that we need to go beyond that and think about there are a lot of chronic health conditions that, you know, people have to have to maintain those conditions and the prescriptions and other things they need to do are costly. So that's something I think it's important to pay attention to is medical debt and that the General Assembly here is, is working on that issue. And, and I think it's important one for people to raise and, and rally around. Um, you know, I also wanna say that we understand that we know that managed care is, so it's Medicaid managed care. So it's a transformation, you know, from a fee for service to more of a managed care role where um, private entities are managing the care of the people on Medicaid. And so their prepaid health plans are what they're considered. And we are working to make sure that as people are receiving care under this managed care system that's been privatized, um, is that people understand what their rights are within this new system. Because I think it's often people don't, didn't understand the previous system. Our healthcare system is just more complex than it needs to be. Um, and so there are opportunities for people who are receiving Medicaid to be on um, what's called MAX is member advisory committees. And so I would encourage people if they are receiving information from their health plan or from the Department of Health and Human Services that they see if they wanna be a part of those member advisory committees because that's where your voice is gonna get embedded into the policies to improve upon the Medicaid program. Um, and the last thing I would say related to that is there, there is an, um, a new ombudsman program for people who are having issues with their Medicaid, where they can call that number. I'll make sure I'll get that to you all um, later. And to get, you know, to have someone to help them um, along the way manage, you know, their healthcare through Medicaid. Well, you know, in, 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 in line with that, we, we just came out of a uh, pandemic uh, with uh, COVID-19 that uh, had us uh, uh, isolated uh, from each other. Uh, and during that uh, period, the federal government uh, came in with uh, massive infusions of, uh, of cash uh, to uh, finance really the, the recovery of America uh, from uh, COVID-19 uh, with uh, vaccines uh, that were provided uh, at no cost, uh, testing provided at uh, no cost, uh, 
PPEs, uh, any number of other medical related uh, expenses uh, that was absorbed by the, uh, by the federal government. Uh, in return, the state government did not do anything, particularly North Carolina uh, in uh, that regard, even though we suffered in the state as much as anyone uh, in the uh, country uh, from this, uh, this uh, pandemic. Um, and, and, and looking at that, realistically, what can you expect our North Carolina legislators uh, to do with respect to health care and helping to attack this massive cost uh, that uh, people will incur and continue to incur from these uh, illnesses that, uh, that they did not create or ask for in their lives that were really forced on them by unknown forces. Uh, so what, what, what can we expect from, from the legislature in, in, in that regard? Yeah, thank you for the question. You're absolutely right that we the people need to be involved in the decision making around what happens to those dollars. And I think that's really where, you know, the municipal and county governments need to come in. Uh, I was serving on the council at that time, and we had to make very tough before money even came right came into the state, we had to make tough decisions about what to do to protect the people who live and work and play here. Uh, what what I think is important to do is to always have public comment. And so that is something at the local level we had and that we continue to have as a town related to what we want to do and how we spend things in our budget. And so I think it's really important that if at any time any entity does not have public comment, particularly at the state level, we create our own public comment. <laughs> and so... Um, and so there were times where there were certain proposals that came out we caught as advocates, and then we would send them out to people on our list to say, hey, this is what might be potentially done. You need to weigh in. And so we actually do provide public comments. And then even when we're not asked, we put our nose in what, you know, in what is, we think is our business. And so I think writing letters to the editor, being clear about what your community needs, writing opinion pieces being really clear about what your communities are important. I also think going to the hospitals, you know, there's that community benefit piece, you know, that public hospitals have to spend a certain amount of funds. You know, this is pre-COVID, right? Because you're receiving incentives and, you know, related tax and other incentives. Working with the hospitals who run the community benefit is something that's key also to get what you need in your community out there and align with other community groups to make sure that that happens. You're exactly right. That money needs to be spent the way the community believes it needs to. And so not surprisingly, at the end of every you know, election cycle, there will be preparation for the next right election um, that we've got. So uh, you know, 2024, everyone has their eye on that. Um, efforts are being made to position selves so that you know it the the election turns out um, depending on your on your party or your affiliation either exactly as it has right with this most recent cycle or in another way. Can you share your thoughts as someone who has run many campaigns and you've already touched upon this a little bit in terms of your approach? But as we look to 2024, what 
thoughts do you have for those who um, are planning campaigns, um, particularly those who are more progressive, because the election did not turn out the way that those of us who you know consider ourselves either Democrats or progressives the way we would have wanted it. What should um, those who plan on running or or those who plan on being involved um, in increasing the vote, getting the community galvanized, what should we be thinking about and doing as we prepare for 2024? Yeah, yeah, I think it's key to first figure out, um, you know, who is your audience, you know, figure out how to speak to people, you know, who are you trying to reach? <laughs> and then after you do that research, you can figure out then what messaging do I need to use to reach that audience? <laughs> um, and then I also, and I say that to say I'm not that person or I'm not them doesn't really tell me who you are. I really need to know more about what, who you are and what you're going to do in that seat. And I don't feel always at every level that we get to understand what that person will do um, in that seat. And I, I just think that we got to get better on, on who our audience is how we're trying to reach them, what are the messages, you know, what are the things that we can correct, how, how, I, how can I help besides voting, how can I help? I just think those things are key and we have to really get ourselves, I think together, um, if we're going to win things together, we have to get together. And I, I, don't, I don't think we always are together on that. And I don't think we have to be in a bloating box, I'm not talking about bloating box, voting blocks necessarily but it is about being really clear. And I'm not always clear when I, before I get ready to vote. Well, you know, follow up on, on that is that uh, increasingly the largest political party in North Carolina is the unaffiliated. Uh, they are surpassed uh, the uh, membership uh, claiming uh, to be Democrats and those uh, claiming to be Republicans, how do you touch and uh, motivate uh, those individuals who are now part of that, that third political wave uh, that exists in uh, North Carolina and in, in other states? You know, if you are moving toward uh, some uh, political involvement in 2024. Yeah, I think for, for something that I did is to figure out why the person left, like what, which way did they lean? They were they leaning more conservative or progressive? Why did you, why did you decide it was important? Was it a, a issue with your job, you know, you know, or was it something that you were moving away from? And I think a lot of it, a lot of folks say that they felt like the party of their, you know, grandfather and their grandmother, that party that didn't work for them. And some people felt like there was one party that was not um, necessarily representative of them and their ethnicity as much. Um, and I, I think that we make a lot of assumptions about people and people leave. So for example, if you look at me as a black woman and as a, um, a Christian, then do you make an assumption about where I am on abortion rights, for example? People make a lot of assumptions because of some of their past experiences. And so don't make assumptions about people about because they identify a certain way, but where they fall on the spectrum of rights of everyone, 
and how they feel. And so I think we're missing out on really going and talking to people instead of talking at people really need to listen and listen to understand, not to respond. And I think related to that, you know, we've got this growing unaffiliated group, but we also have more young, you know, the, the younger population is becoming engaged. Um, but there's also a, a pretty big segment of those between like 18 and 30, for example, who are not as engaged as we would like, but, but we are seeing movement in that space. Can you talk about, and you mentioned that, um, with your campaign, you've had young people who have helped and assisted and, you know, gotten the word out about your um, candidacy. Can you talk about how we can do a better job of involving the youth, since they are a growing voting population, and making sure that they stay engaged in these issues? And, and then also encourage them to become involved in the political process um, and running themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean... There's also people in that age group who don't see their life changing in any way when, when they <laughs> voted for other people. So, you know, I've had people challenge me, how has my life changed? I'm still, you know, if I miss a paycheck, I'm done, you know, and it's really hard. So I think maybe another thing is we have to share our successes. I think we have to communicate more. And how do, how does that age group want to be communicated with? I mean, I don't think they're like call doing robocalls works for them. I don't think continuing to text them works for them. We've got to figure out what works for them. Potentially maybe doing ads on Instagram. It's got to be something different. You know, we've got to do to reach people. And I think we have to show them what is different for them. And it really is more of the local level things. It's harder to talk about things on the high, like macro level with people, but to say, you know, you can actually walk in this neighborhood now because there's this multi-use path here, or, you know, there are more stores coming closer to neighborhoods, more of a mixed use thing and say, oh, I hadn't thought about that. They don't see that. They don't, they don't see things are, that are just smaller things to them. Oh, that there is a basketball court here that has like a shade tree and a water. They don't think about those things that someone actually had to put forth those things and say, we need to put that there. It may not have been in the original plan and I might have some experience with that, but you have <laughs> to show people how the things that they're enjoying came from a policy decision. You know, all things are policy decisions, even the way we look at poverty and the way people are still stuck in poverty who are working every day, that's a policy decision. And I think we need to and tell them we can support you if you run. You don't have to have it all figured out. <laughs> I think those are important things. Yeah, one of the things I appreciate you saying, you know, or emphasizing that we need to let them know of the wins and um, the wins that not just affects their lives, but also their loved ones' lives as well. So it may be that a policy doesn't affect you directly, but it may affect your parents. And this will make, you know, their quality of life better and then and your involvement better. And so yeah, getting getting that information out. Um, we have just a few minutes left and um, you have been involved in public service for, for many years. Um, you're retired from that. Can you just share with our listeners, because hopefully 
you know, we've got folks who may not have considered running for office um, who are now considering it or thinking about how they can encourage folks within their circle. Because one thing that we absolutely do need, we need more people involved who are willing to be public servants in the way that, that you um, have been and, and certainly continue to be. Can you share with us why you decided to kind of throw your hat in the ring in the first place? Um, and then, you know, when you realize that you, that season of your life was over and you're beginning, you know, like a new adventure, um, how you came to that decision? Yeah, I can start and tell you what happened. Um, and I'll, I'll blame it on um, one of my colleagues who, and, and I'll bring it on Reverend Barber and then Apex. So people remember the Moral Mondays. Um, and so, you know, our team was tasked with helping people support them with their speeches, you know, like by giving data points for the speeches. And so my co-director at the time was at his daughter's violin, um, violin camp. <laughs> and so I had to then actually do the speech. And I was like, no, 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 I don't do that. I just help with the. So I wrote three emails to Reverend Barber's team and it just didn't make sense. And so I just went, I, I got to do it. And I got up there with him and just, it just, my, the anger and, uh, of, you know, thinking about, you know, people who are dying unnecessarily took over. And so people in Apex were there and dragged me to this house almost and 20 some people saying, this is just what you got to do this for us. And so that was a moment that I felt after prayer every single day for a week when different people, I asked for clarity from God that I knew I had to run and I didn't know what the result would be, but now I think I'm clear on what that is. And so I would say to folks who are considering serving is that there may be something that you do you never intended and then like bend your path, but actually that's probably where you were supposed to be. And that by doing that, you'd not only change the lives of people who look like you or share a lot of things with, about, with you in common, but change the lives of other people who are gonna be so incredible in their lives because they were connected to something um, you know, one of the examples is having young people say, Nicole, I came to council meetings to hear you talk because you came to my school and talked about inequality and you were my elected leader. And so these folks, again, don't don't share my gender necessarily or my ethnicity. So I think it's important that I touch the lives of people who have different backgrounds. And that's really what service is and what I understand that, you know, I believe that we're all fearfully, wonderfully made. And, and that's what I would say, just put your name in there and, you know, contact me if you need some help. And, you know, that's, that's what I would say. It's a beautiful time in my life. And I'm very appreciative of how Apex treated me. So thank you so much. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time and energy and sharing your insights with us. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but we'd love to thank our guests. Nicole Dozier. She is the retired mayor pro tem of Apex, and she is the director of the Health Advocacy Project of the North Carolina Justice Center. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.